We're thrilled to kick off the mixed panel series today with sound editing. Uh, we do sound editing, sound mixing, sound technology. And the role of the editor stays the same. The, the job, I would say the job of the editor is undergone a lot of changes recently. Uh, in terms of, you heard in the keynote, we have some editors who design, supervise, and mix. We have some who follow a more traditional model. The work, however, has been stunning. And, uh, and I want to introduce our panel here real quick. We have, and I'm going to list credits just recent because you can go find on Google and IMD. But Becky Sullivan, I first met on Batman back in the mid-90s as a dialogue editor, I believe, over with Bruce and, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm just thrilled to come back and, uh, and say, like, you did the woman king, you know? I mean, um, we have Robert Stambler, who, like, we have this lengthy history of Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and now we have Power of the Rings. Uh, Robert, two years on this. Um, we have Danica Wiki, who is um, only murders in the building. A lot of, and what, what, one of the reasons we like this is there's television, whether it's even called television, and film have a sort of, this sort of merging thing and workflow and what and it's a fantastic track on a streaming service and uh, we're thrilled to have you here Danica um, and then Mark Mark Steckinger no stranger to these hallways by any means and um, tonight you'll see a clip from Bullet Trade which has uh, how somebody got comedic violence in sound it's just it's still a mystery to me but there are people being slashed, and I'm laughing, you know? <laughs> so um, we'd like to begin a, a little bit without dwelling on pandemic. There are certain things that the world found themselves at home. I think Becky said, sometimes you're working at the kitchen table with a laptop. Um, and it certainly brought on some changes. And I think we'd just like to start off a little bit. Um, sound editors have been an adaptable crowd for, since the very beginning. Um, but there's been a lot of changes the last two years. Uh, Becky, I'm going to start with you and just some positive uh, look. I mean, something you either learned in the last two years that you were able to carry forward, uh, whether it's working with how you work with a team or how you work with technology. Could you give us an idea of the last two years? And I think that um, the last two years have been uh, a challenge, and yet it's been a real learning experience. And it's also been... You know, you, we have these crews, right? And I've had the same group of people working with me for 15 years, 15, 20 years almost. And now we're not together. We're not going to lunch with each other every day. We're not collaborating where I'm going into somebody's room and looking at things and we're talking about it. We're not doing that. But we are together in a different way because we're all experiencing, you know, most people were at their homes. And, um, you know, guys have set up, we've all set up a working place at at our homes to be able to to do our work and you know of course we use zoom and i use slack and we're we're talking constantly throughout the day checking on things we're still collaborating so much and it's you know somebody finishes something they aspire it to me i look at it i make notes i make changes i call them we talk it through you know just because they're not next door doesn't mean that we're still not completely collaborating on everything we're doing well, and what about listening environments i mean have you how did you guarantee sort of this consistency in listening when people might be in headphones well we're yes yeah. we're using headphones yeah. there's a lot of new technology coming out w with with headphones but we're 
We're also on, like Woman King, we did uh, five previews, five temp dubs. So we were constantly in motion with being on the stage and listening to things and, and you know, refining it, refining it here, you know, in, at, we were in the Cary Grant for that. And so um, I've, I found it challenging, and yet uh, the camaraderie is still there, and the co collaboration is still there. So We're all we just, just together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Robert, uh, I had two years pretty much parallels <laughs> the, the shutdown, and, and that's Lord of the Rings. So what was your experience like? Oh, man, I mean, um, it, it was mostly very positive. You know, I, I, before the pandemic, I always wanted to move into the more composer role of how they work where you know you're not entrenched with the filmmakers necessarily it's just a nicer environment it's more conducive to being creative um and uh at the beginning of my show it was really like a traditional client forward facing thing actually went to new zealand was there with picture editorial when they started shooting then the pandemic hit and it was like okay so now you're gonna really force everyone's hand into that world i was hoping to get into but um without echoing all the specifics that you know becky brought up it's really about that collaboration and all that time that we spent together in the trenches before these two years, like made yeah. these two years possible because you're not seeing people at the water cooler and you're not having lunch together and you're not having that daily, you know, dialogue. Um, so you really have to rely on your team's instincts um, because you're not necessarily reinforcing them on a day to day level, you know, but it, it is important to, uh, when you're divided physically to still have a connection. So yeah. it's it's really about working on that. And then the technology side of things, I mean. Makes it possible. Really. A, a pr program like Resilio, and somebody hits save in New Zealand on a Pro Tools session, five seconds later, it's updated. I didn't have to think about it. We might as well be all working in the same place, so. Um, and it's interesting, both of you brought up collaboration right off the bat. I mean, in publishing, you know, we, same type of thing, we disappear. Uh, and I'm a person who, for the first, you know, 28 years of mix, I'm, uh, I, I like to bounce ideas off people. I like that. I mean, I think in, in the creative process, um, there are a few mad geniuses in this world that can do it solo. Uh, but I think we crave that interaction. Um, Danica, uh, not only murders in the building. Uh, the, the last couple of years, fantastic show. Uh, how does the working during the pandemic and maintaining that collaboration come about? I think TV works in a little faster environment, so um, you know we're kind of per episode. So uh, you might do more pre dubs, whereas I basically get one week. You know, we get a week, <laughs> um, and so you know, lots of phone calls, lots of emails, lots of um, notes. Uh, you know, we'll do a spotting session, and then you know we'll basically. <clears throat> say, okay, uh, you take this, I take this, and we, you know, we kind of all send it back to, you know, myself or Matt or, and, and we kind of look it down and then we hit the stage and we just go. <laughs> so it's pretty fast. But I mean, since the pandemic, I know I had a show that started two months after lockdown and we were all a little bit like, okay, we can't show up anywhere to record ADR. We can't loop anywhere and per like, what do we do? And uh, there was, you know, a horror story that came about is um, I had an, we had to rely on the actors to troubleshoot their own computers, which was really fun. Um, and I had one situation where uh, we recorded for three hours and he realized he was not recording. And so we had to start over. I think I was on Zoom for about eight hours that day and I wanted to um, crawl into a hole. So, um, you know, once we kind of figured out those kinks of, hey, um, let's do clean feeder, let's do something else where we're not relying on the actor to be their own tech, um, that 
got better and then things started to flow better. <laughs> uh, Mark, you mentioned it uh, right before, uh, nobody really stopped working. I mean, this was, I mean, they was busy as could be in the post-production community. I mean, what was your experience like that? Odd up, you know, starting and then through bullet train. Well, right. I, everybody I know is busy all through pandemic. It's like uh, it didn't happen, so which is probably a good thing on certain levels. Um, but I'd say that my workflow didn't really change. It just reinforced what I was already doing. And everybody, pretty much everybody I work with has always been remote to a certain degree. And uh, the collaboration is that it's sent to me via server, sometimes in a spare, depending if somebody doesn't have connectivity to that server. And I get to be the clearinghouse for the content, dialogue effects, ADR fully. Um, you know, in addition to what I'm working on and package that in a way that goes to the mix. And if you can't go to the mix because it's pandemic or or if you're doing it yourself because nobody can come to you, then that's really made it less involvement to a certain degree. Now it's fortunately coming back to a normal world. But that was the main difference in ADR and group ADR was really painful. There was actually some a Saturday Night Live skit couldn't even do it justice. It was it was funny and sad on many levels. <laughs> I was working on the film uh, Corella right when the uh, pandemic started, and we had to do group. And we did it in England and the US simultaneously. It was, you know, I won't even go into those details. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that other than the ADR situation and maybe more time on a Zoom or something like that, it didn't really change. My, work, my workflow really didn't change. Somebody, so I think some mixer said to me like, I never realized, you know, I have an assistant off. I never realized how long it takes to upload and download things. <laughs> yeah. My connection at home. Yeah, that's very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at home and everything. Um, uh, let's move on. We, we, we mentioned that this is about uh, sound and music. Now, obviously, or effects of music. Obviously, these are not music editors. And the reason that we bring that up is that uh, technology has made it somewhat possible to come in earlier play tracks against each other. And I've noticed a trend. I mean, when I first started writing about film sound, I was always sitting on a dub stage wondering why well, haven't, I mean, uh, from the outside, it doesn't make any sense that this is the first time they're hearing their tracks against music. Um, let's start with uh, the other end, Mark. I mean, can you give me an idea of what's going on now in terms, whether it's dialogue, whether it's music, how, is that experience changing where you're getting it earlier? Well, I would say that my experience is that it all falls on the picture editor and, uh -huh. and the picture department and God bless them because ultimately they are telling the story visually and sonically with sound and music. And frequently they're getting some music early on from the composer, if that's possible. And they're definitely getting sounds from me early on. So they start finding ways to craft that track and develop ideas. So when you get to a mix later on, it's not, 52 card pickup with how you want to tell your sonic story. You've really experimented with a lot of things along the way. Yeah, I mean, obviously some of the frequencies and, and how things will play and the clarity is always going to be different and that's always going to be a challenge. But it's not going to be uh, like you're reinventing how the sonic story is told. And Becky, you, uh, you did Pam and Tommy, which was almost a streaming, and then you went to the, the Woman King. Um, you come out of a background that has editorial mix. Uh, what, what changes have you seen in terms of that interplay of the three main food groups, in a sense? Well, I don't, I don't feel that it's, it's changed. Okay. You know, it's just um, like on Woman King, if you're talking about the music, we, they did not record the music until uh, we were finaling 
and and they were recording um, the the score, which is crazy, you know. Yeah. But it just there was it was such a tight schedule, and we had Terrence um, Terrence's music uh, from other films as our as our temp, and so we were you know putting things around that, and that helps when you've got a a picture editor that's using score from the same composer, putting it in. Um, it was it was really challenging to have the music come in that late, and yet, you know, uh, Kevin O'Connell mixed it, and it was it was absolutely amazing. You're gonna see you're gonna see a clip tonight. It's it's stunning. Um, in television, uh, Danica, Robert. I mean, yeah, it's fast paced. Uh, yeah. what, what do you hear? Bef- what do you hear before you get? Um, I usually, in a spotting session, they'll have, uh, the editor will have put in some temp from the composer, usually. Um, and, the, you know, they have more to pull from, depending on how many seasons you have. Um, uh, but basically, that's my guide. And then, you know, music doesn't fly in, uh, usually till the mix, and sometimes at the end of the day, you know, of day one. It just depends, you know, they're really up against the wall sometimes. So, um you know, but sometimes the editors, there's some specific ones that are, you know, they edit to a specific song or music. So, um, you know, that usually doesn't change. But in some sense, you know, you know, sometimes it does. Just depends. I mean, what's your experience? like? Well, it's different with every composer and every, you know, some composers demo and the demo is like, you know, the digital version of what the thing's actually going to be. And then, you know, other composers, maybe don't do that at all. And so it, it, it's different on every project. I can, speaking of the project I just did with, with Bear McCreary, we had worked together on a handful of films already. So um, we have like a great relationship. And I, I think that's super key and, and a great way to get ahead. Yeah. You know, things like music showing up during the final mix, not even during pre-dubs. And like, how do you prepare for that? And it's really you, just communicating um, you div- if you do a few projects with a, a composer, you you really get you can kind of complete their sentences. You know what they're going to do, and you can prepare adequately. And when it comes to you know traffic collisions of sound design and music, you really just you kind of got to be on your toes. I mean, you can prepare all you want, but surprises happen. So really having it broken down into low, mids, highs, and bob and weave, and he zigs and I zag, and all that, it, you know. But it's different on every project and. Sure. The, the way to succeed is to just have an open dialogue with the yeah. and not not be in your own trench. Like everybody's your friend, the editor, the composer, and the more rich your relationships are, the better. That's a that's a very it brings up something. We we just did an event in August uh, on immersive music, Dolby Atmos music, and we were at Power Station Studios. At a there's a certain point at the end of the keynote where I think it was George Bastenberg was saying something. He says, "Well, just simply pick up the phone." You know, developed that relationship, and it became something that stuck with a lot of people that we can't forget during this isolation time. I mean, communication is key at that point. Um, in terms of, uh, to take a little veering here, I think it was, I mean, this has been going on since the start of film, where this sort of uh, dance with music and effects, often it's, it's simpatico, it's synchronicity happens. Um, I remember seeing Dunkirk, for instance, and going like, wow effects and music working together there. I mean, your mind, uh, and then it, certainly things like, dude, when you get me a genie up there. Uh, what, what is the, 
uh, what's the perfect world? I mean, how do they work together? I mean, are we talking about rhythm and effects? We talk about rhythm and melody and harmony. Do you use those words in the effects world? I mean, what do they mean? You definitely do, because it's all about orchestration and whatever the sound is. It could be the sound design, sound effect, or the music. And you take a lead from the composer sometimes, or they can. you can take a lead from the pace of the picture edit. But we all have seen tracks that aren't, and a lot of times because of last minute changes, quite honestly, that aren't orchestrated the way that they were originally intended, and it just doesn't flow. So if you can get to the point where you can orchestrate things as you go with your beats and your sounds, then it all is going to be a much more pleasant experience for sure. Yeah, yeah flow, flow, and I would say seamlessness. That's yeah. really what you're what you're going for. You don't like some of my favorite sound design and film, you know, music and film. Like I don't know what's doing what. Yeah. Like it all feels like the same yeah. thing. It's just coming from the screen. Yeah. Good point. I mean, do you, do you have examples? Anybody want to bring up an example of what it really worked well for them? Or do, do you experience? Well, it? I'll bring up an example of a challenge. Yeah. Um, there was a, a scene um, in Murders where Mabel was hacking up a statue um, in one of the earlier episodes this last season. And um, it was originally cut to a different song than what we ended up with. Um, and so the rhythm of it was... Uh, the, the song that was chosen was a Billie Eilish song, um, and uh, Selena really wanted that uh, song in, and so it wasn't really edited for that song, and so the the flow and the the pace of it was all kind of uh, off. And as in, in the middle of it, she's also taking an axe and you know hacking up this thing, and so trying to make both of this axe sound and this uh, song mesh together was a little bit of a challenge because. Uh, Billy's song was not as rhythmic as I think they had intended that scene to be. Um, and so trying to bring out the metallic, you know, verbiness of uh, the acts and bringing out the highs of Billy's song to try to mesh those two and, and line it up properly was was a challenge because that was kind of a last minute thing. How did it play at the end? I think it works. Yet sometimes you just like you you move the sink and yeah. it's like it doesn't look right. It's like it sounds right. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, one little thing on Bullet Train, there's a thing called the silent fight, and there's like a lot of fast punches from Brad Pitt with music that's supposed to be in sync, and the music wasn't quite in sync, and so it obviously didn't work well. We wanted the sync of the sound effects, so I just this is an attempt took elastic um, audio and just timed the music to match yeah. the sound, and it works fine, and it, that accomplished the goal that everybody was looking for. I, I tell people, if you like technology, it's a good time to be alive, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> uh, Becky, happy happy accidents, uh, frustrating challenges. Uh, uh, what do you got? Well, I think uh, in, in, with music, you know, what sometimes we, we get into is, you know, the composer trying to be the sound designer. And we come up with kind of the same thing. And we're doing something and they're doing something and you know, well, can we push our stuff? (laughs) Yeah, we push our stuff and then they push their stuff and then pretty soon it's all, you know, and, and so for me, it's, it's like, I'm always thinking of a, the soundscape of a movie for me is, you know, the storytelling, the landscape of the sound, the emotion of the soundscape tells the story. And so for me, it's like, what best serves the movie? You know, can we hear what best serves the story? What best serves the movie? Sometimes it's sound effects, and sometimes it's the music hitting those moments. And and uh, 
I'm, I'm, I will say that I do come to a point, uh, like let's say on Woman King, where I said to Gina, our director, you know, we could play this with no music <laughs> if you want. Let's just try uh, it, <laughs> you know. And um, and we did we did a couple of uh, moments in the fight scenes where, you know, there's a lot of music, and then we dump out of music, and it's in the clip. Well, tonight. I want to. I mean, and I want to. The clip that you're going to see tonight with Webby King is just it's it's uh, uh, my applause for you. Uh, and it's it's almost the fight is choreographed. I mean, it's beautiful. They're doing their own stunts. You've got long takes. Um, and you have that in the picture. And yet, Becky, I got to say, the the punches are all unique. The body stuff is all unique. This, the machetes are this metallic sound that we can become used to as a ring or whatever. Um, can you talk to me a bit, a little bit about that fight, how you create that rhythm with dance? Well, the director was, you know, we needed a PG-13. And so if you, when you see the film, it, it's pretty bloodless, and yet it's very violent. And so I was really needing the right sounds for these fights. And if you're, you know, looking through sound effects libraries, you're finding a lot of clink, ding, ting, 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 swords, you know. And that's not what they use. They use machetes. And it's a thick, heavy sound. And so, you know, we went and did some recording, did some different things, and I just kept trying to find that sound. And I finally found it and variations of it for this for the sword fights, the machete fights. And um, once we hit it and I said, okay, this is it and show it to the director and and she was in love with it. But it was that, it's that balance like with, with Bullet Train, it's it's like super violent, super bloody and so fun, yeah. you know? And you can just go for it, <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh, it was so hilarious. And yet in Woman King, there's like, they're, there's a lot of chopping going on and there's no blood and nobody's heads rolling off, you know? So, so to, to hit that balance of, of getting the sound to be harsh and violent and, and really, so you really feel it was, it was tons of fun. Mark, follow up on that. I mean, how did you make, I mean, cause uh, you'll see the clip tonight. We open with it and it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I found myself laughing at certain yeah. points where there yeah. are beheadings. Yeah, blood's never been so funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's really all David. You, obviously, David Leach, the director, you have to start with that because that is his vision for something that's um, broad. He, he likes visceral moments, but he also likes comedic moments, and he's got this amazing ability to combine the two. So with that, uh, with that, with that palette, it's great to just find sounds that are a little bit broad and over the top and hyper accentuated to really uh, pay homage to that. And uh, yeah, I, yeah not, you're right, Blades and all the rest. It's worked on a film once to record a bunch of um, samurai swords for Kill Bill and The Last Samurai all at the same time. It was the most unimpressive sound I've ever heard. Yeah. Machetes all day long. Yeah. <laughs> Robert, do they have violence in Middle Earth? Oh, yeah. yeah and then right. the, it's coming and there'll be more of it and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> but it's funny. So it, often it's the sounds around the sound. So like with the swords and stuff, it's not necessarily the hit, but the stuff right before it and the sharp mentality. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, anybody can make it thump and hit hard, but it's about uh, detail and emotion and then, you know. If there's music playing at the same time, having those resonant elements sit with the music nicely and 
sacrificing sync for rhythm and all that jazz. Yeah, I think I think Wiley once said to me like, it's about it's not as it's it's about the sound, but it's as much about how you get into that sound and how you get out of that sound. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can elaborate on that now. That thanks for reminding me. Like again, in our let's say Silent Fight and Bullet Train, it was obviously an homage to Hong Kong chop sake movies. So leaned into that big time with lots of kind of wishes and whips and things that, you know, you might put a little detail of that in something that's supposed to be a little bit more normal. But in this particular case, it was all about playing it up and making it over the top and, and making it as broad as possible. So it was kind of like a genre scene, so to speak. And so the sound was able to follow, which is great. Danica Quirky. Yeah, yeah, quirky sounds and in and out. Could you uh, help us out there? Oh, man. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think sometimes the challenge is, you know, especially like in a fight scene or something, uh, not having every hit sound the same. You know, how do you make the same machete sound different, right? Or something, um, which is difficult. And so sometimes it's it's that, you know, f sound in the front and sound in the back that might help our ear feel like it's different. Perception, in a sense. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I want, before we get to a and a here, I would like to, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about immersive sound. Uh, in the sense that when we are at the uh, the recent music event, a uh, part, big part of Mix's world, uh, they just consider it not the tracking engineer's job. It's a mixer's medium. It's a mixer's medium. Um, you know, just track it the same. Record the drums the same. Uh, uh, but you must think about an Atmos playback in the edit. I mean, correct? And, and when you do, how? Becky, Becky, let's start. I mean, how do you think of immersive when you're Absolutely. Your um, you know, for Woman King, it was all about feeling the sounds of Africa and being, you know, 1823 Africa, you know, it's, so it's, it, we, we had to get there and the Atmos, we mixed in the Cary Grant with that is so beautiful. And we just were with the backgrounds, with the birds, with different things that we we were using, uh, we're very specific about how that was going to play and how that would play in Atmos. And we would have, you know, I had lots of backgrounds and lots of different things so that when we got into that, uh, Tony Lombardi was our mixer and we, we, he and I would just sit there and talk about what, what we were going to hear and how, how things would move in the room and how the, you know, again, getting that sonic landscape, you know, and how it would play and where we would place things. And it was, for me, very much sitting next to the mixer and just, you know, doing it together and and we absolutely cut cut for atmos cut absolutely for atmos. yeah because what i mean you know, what like all your opinions of that because uh i can remember being at the dolby presentation theater in 2012 where they invited up tech journalists to hear dolby atmos for the first time and they had randy tom uh standing up with the opening scene of the incredibles a pixar film and you know, there's little people running, flying overhead, zoom. I mean, it's a bit crazy, huge whooshes. Um, and everybody's wowed. Things are flying over your head. And Randy warned that day, it's going to be fun for jet buys and bullet buys and sword hits. But he goes, but if, if real beauty that I found was the rain falling through the leaves in a forest. Yep. That is a strength. Um, 
Can we talk about environments a little bit that maybe Robert started off? I mean, because we all know what you can do with a plane overhead. Yeah. Well, anything that you hear in your everyday life above you, you is basically fair game as far as Atmos panning. Like you're not going to look up and be drawn away from the screen. You'll just accept it as being there. And as a tool for immersion, like Becky, birds, like single point birds and panning them around as you're walking through a forest. So it travels. I mean, the single cricket as it goes by. I mean, it's. It's really what separates what we do from the music thing. And I know music's now getting into that stuff, too. But, um, I mean, it's everything. I mean, it's definitely part of the magic. And, and and it's all about how you prepare when you cut, you know, and your template. And, you know, knowing, like, oh, I'm going to need to pan this later. I'm going to need separation on this. Communicating that to all, you know, your effects editors and on the team so that, you know, you're preparing the tracks so it can come to the mix and and get panned right out of the gate, you know. All that stuff's super important. Danica, uh, how's the building sound? (laughs) Yeah, the building. um, Sounds scary. Um, No, uh, I'd say for TV, it's probably a little bit, um, I guess, more on the fly, um, just because of time. Um, And so if there's something specific, um, you know, an editor might send me their session and then I I might, you know, play something if I feel like, oh, let's put this somewhere. But um, usually it's on the mix stage that will, you know, be collaborative and say, hey, let's have that, you know, be up there or come from over there, you know, or something. Um, But, you know, it, it depends also on the show. Some shows just there's nothing to put anywhere above you, you know? There's nothing. Um, And others, there's tons. You know, it just depends. Um, But, you know, it's fun. It's fun to kind of, uh, I'll talk about it and say, I I think that needs to say center, or um, that's going to sound really weird if we put that over there. But other times, it works, you know, and it's fun. Depending on the approach. I mean, Mark, certainly you work, I mean, you've worked with some inventive filmmakers and and such over over the years. And um, uh, could you comment on on sort of what you've learned there that simply flying things around versus having a real immersive presence? Actually, I was crafting my answer. Thank you for that question. Um, Two things I've noticed about Atmos. One, if you really want to use an object and you want to pan it, which doesn't really happen that often, it's got to be longer than you would assume it needs to be. If you really want to perceive that in a way that's going to be how so? I mean, explain well, that. it's got to, or slower. Yeah, okay. slow, slow. Maybe slower is like you know, in, in film, you can see a car go a long ways around, but if you want to hear that in a relative level all the way, it's virtually impossible to record. Right? No. You've got to kind of make that up. You've got to do a lot of cheats. And same thing if you're going to overhead pan something, it's got to be a slower sound or a longer sound. So you have duration to really perceive it. So that's one thing, from my experience anyway, for objects. And then, but most of the effort I think really goes into the beds. And Bullet Train's an example of that. Uh, We were able to use ambisonic recordings of some high-speed trains that somebody recorded for me in France, of all places. And that's not the only sound. And there's a lot of other sounds that are imaged and panned. And Frankie Montani did an amazing job of bringing that to life. It's kind of like the most vanilla sound of the movie, but kind of the most important sound at the same time, because it's all on a sound stage, but you can't feel that way at all. So um, that's probably a conversation for another day. But ultimately, it was making the beds in such a way that it felt like you were in the train. And um, those road recordings were hugely important. Well, I shouldn't say the road recordings, road microphone and use the road decoder to spread it and image it and steer it sometimes a little bit. I got to say, in bullet train, you, you feel like you're on the train, though you never really hear it. I mean, in a sense. I mean, right. it's a quiet train, obviously. Yeah. But um, 
that bed's still there. It's yeah. still important. It's there all the way through, and um, each car, you, know, you might not know, but it sounds a little bit different. Yeah. Um, the most important thing on that movie, this is not really an object answer, but it was to give it a sense of movement when some shots didn't look like they were moving at all. So it was to come up with like just little sounds, like you know, you might hear something go by. It, sometimes they're in sync, sometimes they're not. Most of the times they are in sync. And it just kind of creates that real subtle sound. And then, honestly, I don't know what Frankie did with it. If it was, it's frequently not an object, but nonetheless, it it definitely had movement through the um, the field of the, of the theater, and it helped give it a little sense of movement, even though it didn't call attention to itself. Some big things do call attention to themselves, but generally, it was just kind of a pastiche of sounds that made it feel like it was a moving train at speed, at a high speed. Uh, that's that's good lead it. I mean, has your approach to dialogue changed at all? I mean, do you do you carve out things more? Are you planning to move effects out of the way, or does you or is that well that's dialogue part of that orchestration? Well, the picture editor's working on it, and you're working on it too. And, you know, it's easy when you start putting sounds together that you've overcooked the space that you need for the words, and you're dealing with that all the way through to the final mix. But um, you try to make some hard editorial choices like we do when you're sound designing something. If you're to hear a lot of sounds on their own, they all sound cut up and cut off. Well, that, a lot of that's because of clarity. You know, bigger version of that is what you might do to make, the, make sure the dialogue doesn't have too much competition in certain areas. So, yeah, a lot of thought process goes into that along the way. But you get to develop it as you're developing the cut with the picture editor and all the temp stems and sounds you go back and forth with before you hit the stage. Yeah, Robert? Oh, I was just, it reminded me that you mentioned dialogue in Atmos. Like, yeah. you don't often put dialogue stuff in Atmos, but I found on, on the Rings of Power uh, with a lot of, like, magic sort of stuff, rooting it in the dialogue and then doing really fun delay, reverb, echo sends to the Atmos. So, you know, the dialogue's still coming out of the center channel, but the whole design side of it's coming from the ceiling. Um, that was super fun. And previous to this, you know, uh, you can do stuff with loop group where you can kind of Atmos it up a bit. Yeah. But um, I thought that was fun. Uh, got Atmos as a verb now. You Atmos it up. Um, Excellent. I, mean, I, I didn't really mean dialogue within Atmos. I meant sort of the format allowing a different space to carve out the center, I guess. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, with music, it's hugely important. Yeah. I mean, there's something about the way that um, the music mixes now really give a lot of space. And so you can get pretty much all the sound you want from dialogue clarity to certain sound moments and definitely aspects of the orchestration. Becky, you're uh, nodding your head. Same experience. Um, I think we're right. Let's just get a point where we can open up for the audience. Um, you must have questions. We have some A teams up here. Uh, do I see anybody out there who would like to ask a question? There you go, sir. It's coming on up. Thanks for being here. Uh, when you drop a sound in the timeline, do you um, do you worry about its pitch and its tail and its fade in and all that sort of thing? And a quick second question, are you using samplers at all to change the pitch of something like the machete thing you talked about? Does that help you if you take it from a sampler? It, we did not use any samplers. It was all the raw recordings of, of machetes hit in different ways, you know, cut in every little single time, you know, and just different types of hits, but it not not a sampler. 
But Russ, are you, are you concerned with the ambience when you drop it in, or is that something you save for later? Um, safe for, I mean, speaking for myself, I've become a huge fan of late of uh, Radium, which is a plug-in for SoundMiner, and there's a lot of manipulation you can do, and you can create a lot of very variety within that, especially if you're changing up certain parameters as you go. So if you're creating a sound, you can, you know, change pitch and timber and saturation and other EQ reverbs and things like that as you go, and you can set up now, you like maybe create a library of that and then you cut it in and you basically make it for uh, a lot of the space, I would say, gets saved for the mix because you don't want to tie anybody's hands unless you need to present something and put it in like a temporary mix. And then in that case, you might automate the things that you're asking about so it can be adjusted later, if that answers your question. We got one more right here with the, uh, with the microphone. Sure, thank you. Um, thank you all for being here. And uh, I was wondering if you could all talk about kind of the whether there even is um, in the earlier in the editing process collaboration between departments and kind of the um, whether specialization is much of a virtue. I kind of asked that because I'm a music editor getting into sound editing and I find on my music editing projects I never get to talk to the sound department. Um, so I suppose that's a big reason for the question and also on the, you know, smaller indies, sometimes you're doing everything. So how to make the switch, if it even is a switch, uh, I'd be interested in. Thank you. So really to, to answer your question, it's about um, uh, involving the other departments. That that was picture department and music editorial. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I always like, I, I mean, on a film, right? Like there's a director, there's one clear sort of leader on, on the series and TV sometimes it's a handful of people. Sometimes you never really even see that person. It, it all kind of depends. So I always like to involve uh, as many uh, other people in the creation process as possible, right? And sometimes it goes really well, right? And sometimes you have people that um, may not really believe in your idea before it kind of has its day in court, as I like to say. Um, but it, it, it can be really helpful to like plant seeds with other people on the collaboration table of, as to what your process is. And, and, you know, people love when you show humanity and, you know, to, to kind of not let people in on your process. It's not always the, the greatest way to, to create collaboration. So I think that's true because, you know, especially when you're really under the gun and, and a lot of features nowadays, you know, you're just really under the gun with the, with the schedule. And I know that's with, with, TV and streaming too. It's like, so the more friends you can make, the more you're on the same page with the music department, the more, you know, you call them. And as the, the sound supervisor, I'm always trying to reach out to, to, you know, make friends, get a dialogue going, collaborate, make sure we're all on the same page because we're working so hard and there's so much to do. And it's getting to that first temp or that first preview. And you know, you better have all hands on deck and everybody better be on the same page because you're going to get to that temp. And if you're not all talking and making sure that you're all together, it's going to be a disaster. So you have to really just just make friends and talk and uh, pick up the phone and chat. Well, and, and also on that same idea is that as much as you're 
um, trying to collaborate and create things, I think half my job is just putting out fires of, okay, this scene was recorded not great. Um, how do we fix this, you know, without having to ADR the whole thing, you know? Um, or, uh, you know, trying to talk to my dialogue editor, like, okay, how much noise reduction are you, do you want before it hits the stage? Okay, give it, give it to me and, like, this is the raw. This is maybe a little bit, you know, and this is really just so try, try to save some time and also give us some options, you know? And sometimes I end up having to recut an entire scene on the stage because whatever we were doing just was not working and I have to go a di go go at it a different way, you know? Hey, so I have a question about room translation. Have you ever uh, listened to one of your mixes like in a bigger medium stage and then listened to it at a consumer level like in your friend's house? Do you have any experience with that? I'm living it currently. <laughs> yeah, so we, we mixed Rings of Power and a, a Dolby Home Atmos spec but it was a you know a large theater so uh hearing it that way and then you know watching it you know we watch it a billion different ways as we prepare for something to come out headphones stereo earbuds ipad iphone all that jazz but um yeah sometimes when it gets to your home uh your home situation it's a little underwhelming and you know i'd like to just learn from the, those experiences and perhaps tweak dynamic range and you know it, it's Yet it doesn't change your job, does it? You're still approaching the best track possible. Yeah, you can't really, I mean, you, you got to be real about where your thing's going to be heard. So if you're making a movie, you have the comfort of a cinema and cinema sound. If something's going on TV, it's, it's, a, it's the Wild West. So the sooner you make peace with that, the better. <laughs> But um, you know, it's always a it's always a learning process. Well, and and also uh, because of pandemic, um, a lot of the network and some producers uh, are monitoring our mix from Clearview or Evercast or something like that. They're not even in on the stage, so sometimes I like to as you know before they log on, you know, like how is that coming through the internet? How is that sounding? Because you know, I. I we, you know, it's, that's what they're going to be hearing, giving notes. You know, so we're we're giving notes in two different atmospheres. You know. Thank you very much. I'm a Becky, Robert, Danica, Mark. Very talented.